Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Debrief on ABC News Live. I'm Kimberly Brooks. Thanks so much for joining us. So DNA tests are showing that a man who claimed to be a young boy who was missing since 2011 is not telling the truth. Plus, the border battle continues as the President Trump heads down there today. But first, here are your headlines. A 15-hour standoff has ended in the Atlanta suburbs. ABC's Pete Combs says three people are dead. It didn't end with a flashbang, but with a suicide. The standoff began hours earlier when two police officers saw a woman's body in the garage of a home. They tried to force their way into the front door and were met by gunfire. The two wounded officers escaped and will recover, but a 16-year-old boy and his eight-month pregnant mother were killed by the gunman before he took his own life. Chicago officials say the actor Jesse Smollett refuses to reimburse the city $130,000 for the cost to investigate his alleged attack. So officials say they will sue. Smollett maintains he was attacked. Rock and roll legend Mick Jagger is resting up and recovering this morning after undergoing heart surgery. 75-year-old front man for the Rolling Stones had a heart valve repaired yesterday at New York Presbyterian. The procedure was done in a way that did not require surgeons to open up Jagger's chest. He's said to be doing well. Meanwhile, the Stones have postponed a tour that was supposed to start in two weeks. Radio host Craig Carton is expected to be sentenced for ticket fraud. Carton was convicted last year on charges that he used false statements to raise $4 million from investors to buy tickets to resell for profit. Prosecutors say he and an accomplice used the money raised to pay off gambling debts. Carton faces up to 45 years in prison. Remember yesterday when I told you a young man came forward and said that he was Timothy Pitson? This was the young little six-year-old boy who went missing in 2011. Okay, well, after a DNA test, it turns out it's not him. So it's actually a 23-year-old man. So I definitely want to go to Whit Johnson in Newport, Kentucky, with more on this bizarre story. Um, Whit, what is going on here? Who is this guy? Kimberly, really an awful result, especially for the family of Timothy Pitson, that boy who'd gone missing nearly eight years ago. They were holding on to hope that perhaps they were going to get some new information that maybe their boy was finally coming home. Instead, we have this painful lie spun by this man who showed up in a neighborhood in northern Kentucky. Um, we were in Kentucky earlier, Kimberly, but we've actually moved to downtown Cincinnati. And here's why, because we're outside the U.S. Attorney's Office in just a matter of minutes. Federal and local law enforcement agencies are going to be holding a press conference to reveal more information in this case. And of course, there are pressing questions about charges, where this goes from here. How did this happen? Why did we even have to get to a DNA test to identify this man? Let me back up a little bit. This all started, as you mentioned, a man who wandered into this neighborhood in Newport, Kentucky, claiming to be 14-year-old Timothy Pitson. Pitson was that boy who tragically and mysteriously vanished back in 2011, his mother taking him out of school, going on a trip for a couple of days, and then the mother turns up dead in a motel room, an apparent suicide, leaving behind this chilling note saying that Timothy is safe 
safe, but will never be found again. So if you fast forward now, this man shows up and people thought, well, maybe this is Timothy. He had all these remarkable details about the case. He claimed to be 14, which would have been the appropriate age um, if, you, if you added eight years to him. He was six years old when he disappeared. So he's here. He was taken into custody. Police required this DNA test that they said proved that this man was not Timothy. In fact, his name is Brian Michael Rainey with an extensive criminal history from Ohio, mental health issues. He just got out of prison less than a month ago for burglary and vandalism charges. Kimberly? Yeah, what you, you mentioned the family. Obviously, the family would be devastated. Have they made any official uh, comment on this? Yeah, the family of Timothy Pitson came out yesterday extremely emotional. Um, and you just have to admire their strength, first of all, that they even came forward at all. And they said, look, you know, we are not giving up hope. We are, we, are, we are staying strong. We believe Timothy is still out there. And we hope that, if anything, this renews some interest in the case and that we can find Timothy someday. Um, but they said they were devastated. This reopened old wounds that they were still trying to heal from. Also, on the flip side of that, we heard from this man, uh, My Brian Michael Reaney. We heard from his brother. He talked to ABC News and told us, confirming that Reaney has had a history of mental health issues. He actually got treatment at one point, but then stopped his treatment and started getting into more and more trouble. This going back to when he was a child. He'd go into juvenile hall, and then when he became an adult, he was in and out of jail. He talked about this cycle that this man has been through, and he actually apologized um, to the Pitson family family for what they had to go through. So it, it's really just a devastating story all around. So today will be very telling to see how law enforcement officers move forward from here. All right, Witt, thank you so much. We appreciate those updates. All right, you guys, on to Washington. President Trump is heading to the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, this is after a stunning reversal, the president walking back his threats to close the border completely and instead giving Mexico a one-year deadline to fix the surge of migrants. So I want to go to Lana Zak at the White House, and we also have Alex Stone near the U.S.-Mexico border. Lana, I want to start with you. Why this sudden reversal on the closing of the border? Well, to hear President Trump say it, there was no reversal. Uh, we heard just last week that uh, he felt like the Mexican authorities needed to do a better job of uh, patrolling their own southern border to stop those Central American migrants from coming over, which eventually ended up then on uh, on our southern border. He said if they are able to do that, then they could potentially avoid closing uh, the border. Um, take a listen to the president just a little bit ago here at the White House trying to clarify how him saying now that he's not going to close the border is not, in fact, a reversal. Uh, I may shut it down at some point, but I'd rather do tariffs. So Mexico, I have to say, has been very, very good. You know that over the last four days since I talked about shutting down the border. Uh, if they continue that, uh, everything will be fine. If they don't, we're going to tariff their cars at 25 percent coming into the United States. If they apprehend people at their southern border where they don't have to walk through, uh, that's a big home run. We can handle it from there. It's really good. 
So according to the president, he made these threats, Mexico up their ante, and as a result, he doesn't need to close down the border. But what you don't hear the president talking about is what was taking place behind the scenes, and in some cases publicly here in Washington, with Republican members of Congress and even some members of President Trump's own administration saying that if he were to follow through on closing the border, as he had initially threatened, it could be devastating not just for the Mexican economy, but for the economy of the United States as well. All right, Alex, now you're actually at the border. What have you been seeing and what is President Trump going to see when he actually arrives today? Well, yeah, Kimberly, the president is coming here in a couple of hours. He will come here to an area very much like this. You can see there's a lot of the concertina wire now. There is the, the Bullard-style fence. This has actually been around for a little while. He was funded the building of this type of fence going back to 2009, the Obama administration. The, the money has been around for the last decade or so, but the White House is saying that this is the, the beginning of the, the new border wall. He's going to see something very similar to, to what you see here. And Lana, the, the president, he keeps saying that um, parts of the border wall have actually been built. Is this accurate? Well, it depends on, uh, on how... How closely you want to hold uh, President Trump's words to what we actually see there on the border. As Alex mentioned, uh, that section of the border wall that you're looking at right now that has the Donald J. Trump President United States of America sign affixed to it is a bit of fencing that was actually commissioned by President Obama in 2009. It was part of um, a, a greater effort to repair sections of the wall that were old. And the Trump administration, for their part, say, well, it, it happened under our watch. So we're claiming credit for it. Uh, what is true and what we, act, what we can say definitively is of those different prototypes of the big, beautiful wall that President Trump commissioned, that's not what we're seeing and that's not what President Trump will see at the border today. This more accurately re represents some fencing, some fixes that needed to happen. But again, the Trump administration says we're getting it done. All right. And Alex, just before we go, I, we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating. The crisis at the border is a humanitarian crisis, right? Well, yeah, and that's really what both sides agree on, that there is a humanitarian crisis going on. But how to fix it is what's debated. On the, the Democratic side, they mainly say, well, come up with programs, make ways for those who are seeking asylum to, to try to get that asylum and at least to have their cases heard. On the, the president's side and among some Republicans, he's saying, well, shut down the border. This is about security and about stopping them from coming in. So depends on what side uh, you're on. And here in Calexico, people are saying they're glad he's coming here today. They feel like he'll get to see a border town, get to spend time here. This is a depressed community that he'll put some spotlight on this community. And they'll be at least able to show off Calexico a bit, even if this is what he's going to see mainly today and less of the downtown area that they so badly want to show off. All right, Alex, Lana, thank you so much for joining us. All right, guys, so today, former VP Joe Biden is making his first comments after a series of allegations from women who say interactions with Biden made them uncomfortable. And by the way, he hasn't even officially announced if he's running. So I want to go to Mary Alice Parks in our D.C. Bureau. Uh, Mary Alice, as we said, first public comments after this series of allegations. What are you going to be watching for today? What should we be watching for? 
Well, you're exactly right, Kimberly, that Joe Biden only added this event in the last few days. He added it after several women continued to add complaints about the former vice president in news outlets around the country. ABC News has spoken to several women that say the vice president made them feel uncomfortable in their interactions with him. They use words like creepy, strange, and inappropriate, uh, describing a vice president who crossed into their personal space. But none say that they ever felt in danger or assaulted in any way. Still, all the women that we have spoken to say that Joe Biden should apologize for these interactions that, that left them feeling like something was just inappropriate and off in the moment. Now, today, Biden is speaking in what we expect to be a pretty friendly room. Union guys and gals are definitely the former vice president's bread and butter constituency. And we'll obviously be watching closely to see if he makes any reference to these stories or references that video that he put out in the last few days. In that video, he did say that he is a kind of politician that likes making human connections. He said in that video that he gets it and it's his responsibility to change. Speaking of videos, I want you to uh, talk about uh, the President Trump's tweet. Uh, pretty strange response to this Biden news, no? Yeah, the, the president obviously raising eyebrows there, retweeting that spoof photo of the vice president. Joe Biden, in turn, tweeted back, said, I see that you're on the job and presidential as always. <laughs> so these two men already trading barbs. We will see if the vice president goes after the president again today. I was struck by the fact that President Trump spoke about Biden again on the South Lawn just a few moments ago. I think we have that video we can play. What exactly is offensive about Joe Biden's behavior, and are you the right messenger for that? Yeah, I think I'm a very good messenger, and people got a kick out of it. Uh, he's going through a situation. Let's see what happens, but people got a kick. We got to got to sort of smile a little bit. I don't see him as a threat. Uh, I think he's only a threat to himself. He says there that the vice president is only a threat to himself, not a threat to him. It's important to remember, though, that, vice, that uh, President Trump has faced pretty serious allegations himself about sexual misconduct and even sexual assault, and President Trump has never directly acknowledged or denied those. So they're going head-to-head -head on Twitter. Is Biden actually going to run, though, where they go head-to-head -head in some debates? Uh, all signs seem to be pointing in that direction. You know, our reporting was that this was the month that, that Vice President Joe Biden was planning to announce. There continues to be a lot of speculation about when that might be, but our sources tell us that the headlines in the last few days have not impacted his decision. All right, Mary Alice Parks, thank you so much. And the battle over the Mueller report continues. The Washington Post is reporting some people on Mueller's team say the report was more damaging than what Attorney General Barr portrayed in his four-page memo. So I want to go to Mike Levine in our D.C. Bureau. Mike, can you sort of help us sort this out? What's at stake here? This is all about political pressure, and we are entering a new phase of this whole Mueller situation. Next week or the week after, we are, we are going to be able to see all of us in the public see a redacted version of that Mueller report. Then the attorney general is going to have to go before lawmakers and testify about it and answer questions about it. And then that's really going to launch what will probably end up being a court fight over even more material from the Mueller report. Do you think this discrepancy, uh, the confusion sort of lies in the fact that Mueller didn't really come to a conclusion and sort of left it up to Barr to make that determination? Yeah, I mean, it, people are saying, certainly attorneys and folks inside the Justice Department, that they're surprised that Mueller did this. 
But then it fell to the attorney general to decide whether charges should be filed against the president, and the attorney general decided no. So that's really what this is all about now. All right, so we know we're going to hear from Attorney General Barr. Do you think we'll ever hear from Robert Mueller? That is a great question. Robert Mueller is known for not talking. He has, after he left the FBI for several years, I tried to contact him about all sorts of stuff, and he would never even respond. And that's just the way he operates. All right, tight lips, I guess. I yes. appreciate it, Mike. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right, guys, on to Boeing. We've been keeping you updated on this. The CEO is now speaking out and taking full responsibility for the two crashes on their 737 MAX jets. So I want to go to David Curley, who's at Reagan National Airport. David? Kimberly, since the last time we spoke, Boeing's CEO has acknowledged for the first time a direct link between the two deadly crashes of the 737 MAXs, and it has to do with that anti-stall system, which misfired because of bad data. The system relied on one sensor, and in both cases, the sensor provided bad data, and this system kicked in. Now, the, the CEO says basically that we know that this is a problem, we own it, and we're going to fix it. That is a software fix that Boeing says they're having some integration issues with, so it's been delayed a couple of weeks, uh, probably another two or three weeks before it's submitted. The airlines say it could take two weeks after that to train up pilots and get these aircraft back in the air. But think about this uh, big picture now. So we have had what we would consider three documented cases of this system misfiring on a flight. Of those three, two were deadly. One, the pilots did the right thing. There were seven pilots involved in those three instances and only one knew the correct procedure to get that aircraft back on the ground. And that's one of the reasons that this software fix is so important. It will now rely on two sensors, make it much harder for the system to misfire. If it does misfire, much easier for the pilots to regain control. But Boeing has a PR problem uh, and they know it. Uh, they have to build up public confidence in this aircraft. Uh, a lot of folks before it was grounded were asking, am I on a 737 MAX? Boeing will have to prove now to the regulators and to the public that this aircraft is going to be safe with this update. It could be mid-May before the grounding of this fleet is lifted and we actually see the MAXs back in the air. Kimberly? All right, David, thanks for the update. So complicated, no? All right, guys, this, this story's tough. There's still a massive search underway in Uganda for an American tourist who was kidnapped at gunpoint while on safari. So Ian Panel is on the ground with the latest. Ian? Hey, Kimberly. I want you to have a look behind me. This is stunning. It's a Queen Elizabeth National Park in southern Uganda. 1.4 million tourists come to Uganda every year. And you can see why. It's beautiful to look at. It's also home to some incredible wild animals and birds. But this is also three days ago, right to the mark, where Kimberly Sue Endicott and her driver, Jean-Paul Merengue, were abducted at gunpoint. Just a reminder of the events as we know them. They'd gone out on a game drive. In other words, they'd gone out to look at the beautiful flora and fauna, as well as the wild animals here. They were held at gunpoint by a group of men wearing army fatigues, carrying weapons. They took away the American woman, they took away her driver, and they left behind an elderly Canadian couple, but removed the key from their vehicle, meaning that they couldn't escape. But luckily, they had a phone, they contacted the authorities, and that triggered this huge manhunt, which has been going on and on and developing. We've been down in this area since early this morning. We saw the sun rise over Queen Elizabeth National Park. Again, stunning to view. But we also saw a lot of activity. 
We saw military out on the roads. We've seen police going in and out of the National Park, as well as military special forces. We also know there's at least one representative of the U.S. Uh, government here. The U.S. Embassy is also there together with the head of police. Now, Ugandan police will not let us go in any further. They do not want us to film in the park and to see that operation underway. That could be good news. It could be a sign that they're making progress. But we just don't know at the moment. There's almost a news blackout. But obviously, the hope still lives large that the couple are safe and well. Just three theories really dominant now about why this actually happened. One is that perhaps they'd run into a group of poachers. The second is that perhaps it was a group of rebels coming over from the border from the Democratic Republic of Congo. But the dominant theory, and this is obviously because they've demanded a half a million dollar ransom, is that it was inspired by money. That is certainly the hope because that is possibly easier to resolve. Although, don't forget, this is the official policy of the US government not to pay ransom demands. So that's where we are at the moment. The manhunt continues. It's expanded beyond the boundaries of this park further to the south because the fear is that perhaps the American woman and her driver were moved out of this area. But we're waiting for details. Hope still lives large that they're safe and well and can be recovered. And this can end peacefully. Kim? Thank you, Ian. Yes, we certainly hope that they're both safe. All right, guys, more news from the royals. Again, not the royal baby, but about the baby's father, Prince Harry, of course. This is about Prince Harry and his dislike of Fortnite. So here's Lama Hassan in London. Lama? Hi, Kimberly. We're standing right outside the gates that lead to Harry and Meghan's new home, nestled in a quiet corner in the grounds of Windsor Castle. Now, it's been a whirlwind of a week for Prince Harry, attending a star-studded premiere for David Attenborough's new show, Our Planet, as well as going to some charity events and squeezing in a baby moon. But not before Prince Harry took on the gaming world. It was a royal battle between the prince and the popular Fortnite, a game with over 200 million users worldwide, as well as social media. This just days after he and Meghan launched their very own Instagram account, Sussex Royal, breaking a Guinness World Record amassing followers. The prince calling social media, quote, more addictive than alcohol and drugs. The prince igniting a firestorm. The backlash is beginning, with some saying that the prince is out of touch, but he is not backing down. He's going to continue to push with his mental health initiative. Now, with royal baby watchers on high alert, sources tell ABC News Prince Harry won't be slowing down. Oh, no, he will continue to work right up until the baby's due date. Kimberly. Thank you, Lama. Yeah, I guess the baby will not be playing that game ever. All right, guys, before we go, I got to give you something good, right? A proper national forecast. So here's Sam Champion. Hey, Kimberly, uh, let's talk about the weekend weather because it's Friday. Happy Friday. Let's get to it. We'll start with what happened really yesterday to set us up for today's weather. All the storms that were in the south, as weather geeks were looking at the radar going, I can't even believe how much rain this is while folks were under it in conditions like this. Lake Charles, Louisiana with 6.41, 6.42 inches of rain. That's the official number. Call it almost seven because a lot of people did. Look at the flooding that's going on in uh, New Orleans as well. Difficult day into the deep south yesterday with all this steady rain that happened all day long. That rain is an all-day event on the east coast today as that storm starts to move east and north. When it gets into the northeast, it'll have a l enough cold air mixing going on in the, in the top line of the storm, the most northern edge, that will have actually some 
ice, a little glaze going on, a little light snow could be falling. So be very careful if you walk out the door this morning in those northern New York State, Burlington, Vermont areas all the way into Maine. Meanwhile, we'll set up another round of storms. This is going to get kind of old real fast because we've got a number of systems that are coming east that will set up a similar pattern. And this storm line, once it starts today, will be in the south for the entire weekend. So just keep an eye on these storms. They could be a little strong at times. I think the biggest signature will be wind. There could be a little bit of hail involved with them as well. And it's not that we're saying get your eyes out for tornadoes, definitely, but tornadoes are a possibility here and we just want everybody to know it. So have a great Friday, Kimberly, and a great weekend as well. Thank you, Sam, and you guys, happy Friday, and I hope you continue to take care of yourselves. It's the weekend, and if you're around, stick around. We're going to have the briefing room at 3.30 p.m., and we'll have World News Prime at 8 p.m., and if you want to stay updated on all of these headlines, you can go to abcnews.com or download the app. I'm Kimberly Brooks, and I'll see you next week.